Hello and welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care Podcast. My name is Andy Neil. Um, so today, diabetic ketoacidosis, this is pretty much bread and butter for critical care providers. In fact, the combination of bread and butter and the absence of insulin is a core part of the pathophysiology of the disease itself. So an exam whirly summary of the pathophysiology might go as follows. So lack of insulin stimulates lipase, which leads to the production of free fatty acids from lipid stores peripherally. Those free fatty acids are converted to ketone bodies in the liver in the presence of excess glucagon. And ketones dissociate significantly at physiological pH and this sucks up the supply of base buffer in the body and eventually overwhelms it with unbuffered acid and acidemia develops. Beta-hydroxybutyrate is the name of a ketone that you might want to mention if pressed to name a particular one. So both the high sugar and the high ketones lead to an osmotic diuresis which results in water, sodium and other electrolyte loss. So that's the kind of the, the bullet point summary for your pathophysiology. It's probably worth contrasting this with the pathophysiology of hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state, which used to rejoice in the onomatopoeic glory of hunk. In fact, comparing contrasting DKA with HHS seems to be a favourite exam question. So HHS is characterised physiologically by just enough insulin to prevent ketone generation, but not enough to allow peripheral uptake. Slower onset and hyper hyperosmolarity is a key feature, and HHS has impaired thirst mechanisms in the context of hyperosmolarity. Hyperglycemia itself is considered pro-inflammatory and the higher degree of it in HHS suggests the higher risk of VTE. So one of the big things you think about in HHS is um, does this person have a venous thromboembolism? So what criteria might we use to diagnose diabetic ketoacidosis? So a reasonable set of numbers might be ketones in the blood greater than 3, glucose greater than 11, bicarb less than 15 uh, with a pH less than 7.3. There's a Again, a bunch of guidelines that will determine all this for you that you'll have in your hospital and nationally. Um, the one niche novelty version of DKA that is, is the much discussed and not particularly frequently seen in my experience, the euglycemic DKA. So this seems to be a feature of the SGL2, SGLT2 inhibitors, which is secondary and difficulty pronunciation only to their actual generic names um, of the glyphosins, which I really struggle to pronounce. Um, these are going to become a much more common medication in future, given that the Emperor and the DAPA EHF trials have declared these drugs mortality reducers in heart failure, even in those without diabetes, and those are studies linked to in the show notes that have just been published in the past couple of months. So management here is pretty much as expected. Uh, if you've been a dong... A do- yeah. If you've been a donkey, if you've been a doctor for longer than two years, I would refer you to your hospitals or your national guideline for the details on how to manage it. Um, some points that you might want to include for style are um, give some insulin, though not too much. Give some fluid. Um, lowly evil of normal saline can cause its own issues. Uh, ketones are probably a better treatment target than the glucose level um, and it's worth looking for some precipitants. Even though the answer is always non-compliance and even those with insulin plumps, it's still non-compliance as the tubing has been kinked somewhere and nobody noticed. Um, but on the exam, you always say you look for precipitants like heart attacks and strokes and infections. Be careful with the potassium, uh, as I think this is probably one of the best way to kill someone with DKA. So imagine someone comes in with a pH of 7.1, the potassium of 3. They're in a real danger zone, because the first thing you're going to do is give them insulin, and your and that's going to help correct their acidosis, and then their potassium will drop um, fairly precipitately, precipitously at that stage. You've really got to keep a good eye on their potassium. And that's the main reason these people get admitted to a highly monitored area, is the kind of the frequent blood... Um, blood check and the potassium level check and they run the infusions. Finally, on a logistic point of view, it's fairly common for these guys in Ireland to end up getting an arterial line for the frequent sampling, but as one of my very grey and very wise ICU bosses pointed out, a CVC would be infinitely more useful than an art line in this scenario, given that it gives access for bloods, multiple lumens for infusions and allows concentrated potassium correction.
So for some references here, uh, I use mainly, there's a previous Tasty Morsels of Emergency Medicine, number 122, linked to in the website, and O's Manual of Intensive Care Medicine, chapter 59. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.